we have recently launched on patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash lima. This is a place where if you go pledge to us at various levels, such as 1, 5, 10, or 20, you can get thank you gifts in return. And thank you to listener Daniel for being a patron. We get to thank all of you for listening, for sending in your feedback, and we present to you this new way of allowing us to create custom content for you. The main advantage of Patreon for you folks is going to be that at various levels, you will be able to give us direct input as to what kind of programming you want to hear. And on the special members' content, we tilt it directly towards your preferences, and it will also let you get content more often. So, if you like what we do, check it out, patreon.com slash lapsuslima. Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. The seed for what follows was planted some time ago in Lima, Peru at Diacritica's architectural offices. I was discussing with Alonso Toledo and Monica Bellavin how the space not only of design but even architectural discussion had become so limited. An extreme fog of doubt and the disappearance of right and wrong on little more than budgetary concerns has been obscuring architectural discourse for some time. The power of decision had long been surrendered to a fashion plate selection starkly on display in the new innumerable junk food structures in Lima, and the more money spent, the worse the designs became. We resolved to make a weblog, putting into words the motives that backed up our various beliefs about design. This became the series of essays still being added to on lapsuslima.com. Now more than a year into the project, we feel that a weekly podcast is a natural progression. While in audio, we will still be focused on the theory and philosophy, or the why of architecture. The audio medium lends itself to the narrative feel of where and when to being more grounded in the history of design. Our current moment, as well as our coming steps, are greatly obscured if we ignore the events surrounding the dawn of the 20th century. So this is where our story begins, certainly that of the podcast, and we also feel the story of the world we live in starts there in so many ways as well. We begin today with a Copernican moment in architectural history, a revolution in a manner of thinking that has set the stage for future developments. To begin to feel the gravity of this shift in perspective, I want you to do an experiment. As you're going to work or from work or out and about in the area where you live, take a look at what is around you and first, notice what is part of what you can call a natural landscape. And secondly, focus on what has been 
consciously shaped by design. And as you move through this environment, pay attention to what you recognize as associated with the word ornament and the word function. We'll be getting to ornament in due time, but today we want to especially focus on function. Now, I would argue the essay we're looking over today, more than any other piece of architectural thought, has influenced whether we know it or not, how we understand that word function when it comes to the designed objects that we use and that we live alongside and within. And not only that, but there is another layer to the meaning of the word function within this essay that is seldom touched upon. The essay in question is, of course, the tall office building artistically considered, which is a manifesto of sorts by Louis Sullivan, credited with not inventing the skyscraper, but giving it the articulation and form that we have come to know. The architect himself was born in 1856 and died in 1924. He wasn't someone who had a particularly direct route in life. He was always fascinated with structures. When he was a child, he intently followed the building of suspension bridges over the Mississippi River around St. Louis and wrote that this later inspired him to become an architect. Early on, he went to MIT, being completely dissatisfied with the curriculum there, with the way architecture was taught. He left that program and entered as an apprentice in the workshop of architect Frank Furness. This was in 1873, when the economy was not being kind, and he advised Sullivan to go where young architects were very much needed, Chicago. Just two years earlier, nearly the entire city had been destroyed by the Great Fire. Contrary to popular belief, it was not as if Chicago was burned and then immediately the most modern buildings sprang up and it was the Emerald City of the future. Right after the fire, the city was rebuilt very much as it had been before, except with fire codes, of course. But there was a collection of minds, of innovative people. In a sense, Chicago became like the Silicon Valley of architecture. That's where you had the money. That's where you had the creativity. That's where you had the active projects. Sullivan worked there in the office of William LeBaron Jenny, who is credited with building the first steel structure, what we now today think of as skyscraper buildings. But restless as ever, not being satisfied with his circumstances, he left to study at the École des Beaux-Arts, the leading architectural school in the world at that time. But true to pattern, after about a year there, Sullivan was dissatisfied with the way architecture was thought about and returned to Chicago, where in 1879 he set up shop and an enduring partnership with Dankmar Adler. Now, during the years of Sullivan's practice, when he would look back on his time in Paris, he wasn't as completely dismissive as one might at first think. At this time, the great school was under the sway of what architectural scholars would later call the great French academics, people like Guadet, Choisy. These instructors were incredibly good at dissecting architecture 
at getting you to understand what are the elements of the structure of a building, what are the elements of the visual aspects of a building, how do you look at something and grasp what its shape is and then decompose and recompose so that you can see with your eye and then draw with your hand. The objective was for an architect to become fluent in transitioning between the two. And this is what Sullivan picked up and ran with. In his later writings, many of which are collected in a book called Kindergarten Chats, he raised a refrain that would become ever more popular as the 19th century turned into the 20th, which was that architecture was mired in a sense of history. There were too many connections to the past in the sense that we were burdened with historical styles, with imitating things from the past. So, tellingly, the one part of his study that he spoke well of was what I would call the generative arts, where you create shape not by imitation, not by history, not by precedent, but by pure concept. In fact, it was his geometry professor that he actually spoke highly of, though he never mentions his name. A phrase that he took to heart, and which would suffuse his thought about architecture, was that when speaking of geometrical axioms, the professor would say, we must make our descriptions so general as to admit no exception. Now what does that mean? This is the extension of a very old school philosophy called realism, which is often in contradistinction to an opposing school called nominalism, where nominalism is concerned with finding statements that describe a particular thing, say an orange describing how one orange is very, very specifically this orange. And if you're being completely accurate, it is not like any other orange there is. Realism, on the other hand, will try to get to a definition that describes its very orangeness, not what makes it this particular orange, but what makes it an orange to begin with, what binds it together with all those other oranges. And so you get to a sense of a universal statement. And of course, this is a very important fundamental problem in the philosophy of architecture. Why? Many reasons. First of all, instead of oranges, think about people. In what sense are the needs, the requirements, the desires of people, all absolutely different no matter what connections you draw between them. And then think about how, if you take that to the extreme, how impossible that makes any kind of meaningful architecture. And then think about how useful it would be, how tempting it is to seek for laws, for statements, for general concepts that will encompass all humans, or if you think in terms of engineering, all types of steel, all shapes, all bricks. And so here with this realist desire to make statements that are so general as to admit 
no exception. You find a core motivation in Louis Sullivan's thought and practice. Now, when you're dealing with architecture, largely what you're dealing with is the shape of things. The shape of structure, the shape of surface, the size of something, the thickness of something, the depth. All of that can be described as, as shape, or as some people say, the form of the thing. Which raises the question, how will it be built? The tall office building artistically considered was written in 1896, near the peak of Louis Sullivan's career. He was already a very well-known architect, considered responsible for the 1893 World's Fair going to Chicago. Now writing with a series of successful buildings behind him, Sullivan's fundamental argument is that he has discovered the law the general statement to which there is no exception as to why things are shaped the way they are. Not just architecture, everything. He's saying that this is why things in nature, things in human life, things in physics, that this is why everything is shaped this way. And that if we are being honest about architecture, if we want to be purposeful, if we want to be truthful, if we actually want to do things correctly in architecture, we must act with this law in mind and use it to good purposes. That law is the famous dictum, form ever follows function, which he uses as the centerpiece of this essay about, of all things, the skyscraper. I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase before, form follows function. It's still the topic of frequent discussion. It comes from this essay, and the 20th century would take it to places that Sullivan would not, in his most frightening dreams, have recognized or approved of. It came to be understood in far different ways, and indeed that old way of thinking what Sullivan thought was an obsession with history. But the phrase was also picked up as a battle cry of a certain variant within the modernist movement in its equal and opposite reaction against history. Sullivan begins the essay by stating how the skyscraper as an architectural phenomenon has grown out of sociological conditions. He briefly states that uh, these conditions have to do with real estate value, the population of cities, the technical advancements like the steel frame superstructure, what he calls high-speed elevators, the rise in value of ground, property values. All of these things have combined to create the conditions that the skyscraper grew out of. Now, what's important here is that he does not see the skyscraper as some kind of deliberate invention. He does not see it as coming from William LeBaron Jenny. Remember, he worked for this man. This is the man that architectural historians say invented the skyscraper. Nor is Louis Sullivan saying that he himself invented the skyscraper. Far from it. He's saying that the skyscraper was the result of a sociological process. Now that is significant in of itself, but I think even more interesting 
is how he describes this process as bootstrapping itself. He very briefly touches upon a type of emergent system. Now we use that word very readily today. We think of this type of thing like a feedback loop in an economic or a sociological phenomenon. Things so wildly divergent as the housing market bubble on the one hand feeding back upon itself or something like forum trolling on the internet where an argument feeds back upon itself and suddenly everybody's talking about Nazis. Well, because of how quickly things happen, how quickly things are facilitated in our post-industrial era, we are very familiar with this type of looping because we see it so much. It was something that was much harder to recognize in times when societies moved at a less rapid pace. But in 1896, particularly in Chicago, Louis Sullivan was observing this type of emergent process, and he describes it as precisely how the skyscraper came into being. It was not conceived, it was not created, it grew. This is how he describes it. The rise in the value of ground stimulates an increase in the number of stories. These successfully piled one upon another, react on ground values, and so on, by action and reaction, interaction and interreaction. Thus has come about the form of the lofty construction called the modern office building. He is not interested so much in how the skyscraper came about, why it happened so much as how it should be done. And this is where we catch a real key moment in his train of thought. We must seek the solution of it in a process analogous to its own evolution, indeed a continuation of it. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is crucially important. He's not talking about the skyscraper coming about as some type of process that has always existed, as in, oh, this is how we have gotten office buildings in the past, this is the same process which generated housing for us. No. When he described that process of emergence, of looping, of feedback, of iteration, he said that this process in of itself was something completely new. It could be argued that from a certain perspective, it's not new. You can look at things like the formation of clouds in the weather. You can look at how plants grow. You can look at social interaction. The other things that I was describing, economic processes, arguments, so many things you can see follow this generative pattern. But he was seeing this for the first time. Other people were not seeing things and describing them in this way. And so crucially, this is a new step. This is a Copernican reorientation in that not only are we seeing a new way of something happening, we are devising a new way of examining it, a new way of going about our work in order to be in accord with how this process is developing. That if we have an emergent type of building, the design of this building must also have an emergent method. 
that is the decisive break with the past. That is the setting aside of the relation to history, neither fighting with history nor being bound to it, because there is this new entity which we are engaging with. And this is precisely what both the old historicist movement and the imminent modernist movement would miss. It would be generations later that architecture would only begin to incorporate this outlook. When you think of form follows function, think of how that has been drawn through this ringer of a process, of a worldview, of a mindset completely alien to where it started from. What I want to do is to peel back these layers and journey back into what was originally happening with this connection of form follows function to this emergent methodology that Louis Sullivan was making a case for, both in his argument and in his practice. That is where we are going to go in episode two. Stay tuned next week as we dive deep into the content of Sullivan's essay, The Tall Office Building, Artistically Considered. Thanks for listening. In addition to the content that we have coming up for you, we have member-exclusive content. This includes additional in-depth episodes with interviews and full episode transcripts. To get this membership content, it's only $4.99 a month, $1.25 a week. You can sign up at lapsuslima.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at lapsuslima. Our executive producer is Monica Bellavin. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps the podcast grow. Every membership and donation helps us get more content to you.